Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the role that the great powers, the US, Russia, China and Europe, are likely to play in the war between Israel and Hamas, and whether they can resolve or contain the situation as middle powers and local actors exert themselves more boldly, leaving the great powers distracted and often helpless on the sidelines. Joining us is Michael Kimmage, a professor of history and department chair at the Catholic University of America, chair of the Cannon Institute Advisory Council, and a fellow at the German Marshall Fund. From 2014 to 2017, he served on the Secretary of State's policy planning staff at the United States Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. He's the author of The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy, and his forthcoming book out in March is Collisions, The War in Ukraine and the Origins of the New Global Instability. We will discuss his article at Foreign Affairs, The Age of Great Power Distraction, What Crises in the Middle East and Elsewhere Reveal About the Global Order. Then, with civilians in Gaza caught between a fierce bombardment by Israel in retaliation for Hamas's atrocities against their civilians and the illegitimate, repressive, religious fundamentalist government of Hamas, we will speak with Leila Helal, an independent analyst who was the co-director of the New America Foundation's Middle East Task Force. Previously, she served as a legal advisor to the Palestinian Negotiations Department and advised the Palestinian Constitutional Committee during the drafting of the Basic Law. She acted as an external advisor to the Palestinian negotiating team as part of the Annapolis Bilateral Peace Talks in 2008 and was a senior policy advisor to the Commissioner-General of the United Nations Palestinian Refugee Agency and a visiting fellow and instructor at the Refugee Studies Center at Oxford University. She has consulted widely and published on conflict mediation policies in the Middle East. Then finally, we'll examine today's superseding indictment against Senator Menendez for acting as a foreign agent for a foreign government while chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Joining us is Ben Freeman, a research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Previously, he was director of the Foreign Policy Influence Transparency Initiative at the Center for International Policy and a national security fellow at the Project on Government Oversight, where he spearheaded the Foreign Influence Database. He is the author of The Foreign Policy Auction. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, background briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Michael Kimmage, a professor of history and department chair at the Catholic University of America and chair of the Kennan Institute Advisory Council and a fellow at the German Marshall Fund. And from 2014 to 2017, he served on the Secretary of State's policy planning staff at the United States Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. 
He's the author of The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy, and his forthcoming book out in March is Collisions, The War in Ukraine and the Origins of the New Global Instability. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, The Age of Great Power Distraction. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Kimmich. Great to be back with you, Ian. Thanks for joining us. And at this moment, is it likely that the great powers are distracted and not quite knowing what to do about this current war between Israel and Hamas? It seems that Iran actually was caught blindsided by it. Uh, Israel has just bombed the airfields in Syria. Russia seems to be on the fence, but it's certainly not not condemning Hamas. China sort of seems to be staying out of it. I don't think Israel wants it to escalate, uh, particularly with Hezbollah. And I imagine the U.S. is trying to pressure Egypt to help out, but they they may be worried. All of these Arab dictatorships may be worried about the backlash from the so-called Arab street as more and more Palestinians are killed by the Israeli pounding of Gaza. So this is a situation, it seems, Michael, that could get out of hand. But how do you see the world powers acting in the context of your new article at Foreign Affairs? Well, I think you've given a great overview, Ian, of what the current situation is. And I think uh, what we try to argue, my colleague Hannah Nota and I try to argue in the foreign affairs piece, is that the four great powers of the world, which we characterize as you know, Russia, Europe, the United States, and China, will all certainly be pay- playing a role uh, in the Middle East going forward as they've been playing a role in the war in Ukraine. But what makes them distracting powers, each in its own way, is that none will really have the capacity to resolve the situation. Uh, and there's going to be a quality of just being an onlooker uh, that's a bit startling for what these great powers claim to be. Russia is a partner of Iran, uh, but also has an important relationship with Israel, has claimed in the past to be a kind of honest broker between Palestinians and Israelis. That seems uh, out the window at this point. So Russia is kind of clueless in the situation. China has, you know, recently to great fanfare brokered a peace agreement between Iran and Saudi Arabia. That's very much in peril uh, by what's happening. And China has also tried to become, uh, you know, sort of a mediator in the Arab-Israeli crisis and uh, to no effect. Uh, Europe is probably the the biggest onlooker of all. I mean, it will try to mediate, but it just won't have leverage in the current crisis. The U.S. is going to be important going forward in the Middle East, but it's going to be on the side of Israel. Uh, Israel is, of course, an ally of the United States, and I don't think that the U.S. can do much uh, on the other side of the uh, of the conflict. So it's perplexing. Uh, it's in some ways the limitation of power that you're seeing with the great powers, uh, and around those limitations, there are a lot of regional crises brewing around the world. And Michael, do you see Ukraine as the loser in this current situation? Perhaps, but uh, it's you know sort of too soon to say uh, in that regard. Uh, there aren't really too many direct immediate consequences. Uh, probably the demands that Israel is going to make of the U.S. in terms of armaments are going to be much more with its Iron Dome, you know, sort of missile defense system uh, and intelligence sharing and such. I don't think that Israel is going to be in dire need of ammunition unless the war really does escalate. And ammunition is sort of the most pressing current Ukrainian need. So that may be a trade-off over time, but it's not a present-day 
uh, trade-off. So I don't think that um, what's happening in Israel is going to detract in the short term uh, from what's happening in uh, Ukraine. But it is the case that Israel is a formal ally of the United States, uh, has a higher status in American diplomacy than Ukraine does. And Israel has a lot more bipartisan support than Ukraine does. So you do see perhaps some of the structural conditions there for a shift away from Ukraine uh, and toward the Middle East. That's that's not impossible. Well, we have a dysfunctional House of Representatives, or in, in fact, we have no House of Representatives that's uh, operating at the moment. And there's certainly the tail that wags the dog in terms of the Freedom Caucus radicals. Only uh, four can stymie the ascension of a new speaker, and apparently they're doing that at the moment. Then in order for Steve Scalise to get the job, if indeed he does, he has to make more and more concessions, as McCarthy had to make, to the radicals, one of one of which is, of course, cutting aid to Ukraine. So it would seem to me that, you know, we have a peculiar counter-majoritarian phenomenon in American politics where just a few radicals can throw enough sand in the gears to grind the whole thing to a halt. So... How does the world look upon us at this moment? And particularly, how does Zelensky look upon it? He must be tearing his hair out. Right. Well, there are two parallel realities for the outside world. One is that the executive branch of the government and the White House retain enormous powers in the making of foreign policy uh, and can find alternative sources of funding and can act in their own ways uh, without the assistance of, of Congress. So it's not as if the U.S. government has ground to a halt or that Lines of effort with American foreign policy are all uh, inoperative, and that's you know sort of important to remember. But you're entirely right in how you characterize uh, the situation in Congress, and in some ways it's almost worse, I think, than what you uh, described in terms of um, you know overall U.S. credibility and just the viability of of what the U.S. is trying to do in the world. Uh, and it's you know very much with the encouragement of former President Trump that the radicals are doing whatever it is that they're doing and. Uh, in Congress. And some of the fissures on American policy regarding Ukraine, uh, it's not just 20 members of the House of Representatives. You, know, you see those fissures on the stage for the Republican debates uh, in, the, um, uh, in the presidential campaign. Uh, so something has cracked, uh, to be sure, uh, in the Republican Party. And that's precisely what Hannah Nocha and I mean in this foreign affairs piece about uh, distracted great powers. You know, Russia is not distracted in this way. China's not. Europe's not. They have other sources of distraction. But the U.S. is distracted uh, by the extreme polarization uh, of its domestic politics. I think that that's pretty close to an objective fact at the moment. And at the moment, former President Trump, who's running for president, way ahead of his rivals, is effectively the head of the Republican Party, just praised Hezbollah. So that's pretty <laughs> extraordinary. And then you've got just one senator, Tommy Tuberville, holding up military promotions, which is having a detrimental effect on the U.S. military. And another senator for the most eccentric conspiratorial reasons over COVID, has a hold on and a U.S. ambassador to Israel, of all places, where clearly the U.S. does need an ambassador. Yeah, it's not a pretty picture. Uh, it's truly uh, it's truly very chaotic. Um, and we'll simply see how that plays out uh, in the decisive next couple of days and weeks in terms of a possible uh, Israeli invasion of Gaza. And if the war were to of course, there has been, you know, President Trump mentioned uh, Hezbollah and praised them for their for their cleverness. And of course, they've been doing pinprick strikes in the north of Israel. Uh, and then you also mentioned the 
Israeli bombing of uh, of airports in in Syria, which has the potential to draw you know other powers into the uh, into the war. So yes, you would want to see the U.S. as coherent, as organized, as together as possible in a crisis of this magnitude, and that's just not the government that the United States has at the moment. So, Michael Kimmage, you were fairly recently in Armenia, and and things have turned uh, for the worst for Armenia's new democratic government. Basically, uh, there's the ethnic cleansing of Nagorno-Karabakh, and I imagine that has created a certain backlash inside Armenia against this new democratic government that's been quite bold uh, in joining the International Criminal Court, which means that Putin can no longer visit Armenia, but they're pretty isolated, aren't they? Uh, the French have sent military delegations. The U.S. had 85 troops in there in, a, in an exercise, which is obviously for pretty small scale. The French have a history, of course, of helping the Armenians back in during the genocide of uh, in 1915. But what kind of help can the U.S. and NATO give to Armenia? And do you think that... Russia has essentially lost Armenia, or or have they made a choice to support Azerbaijan over Armenia since they're laundering a lot of their oil exports through Azerbaijan? Well, Russia retains a military base in Armenia, and the two countries are, at least officially speaking, allies. And I don't think that Russia sees any need to pull out of Armenia, and I don't think that Armenia wants Russia to withdraw its support, even though Moscow is very frustrating for uh, for Yerevan to be uh, to be sure. Uh, so, you know, I don't think that, that those shifts are quite that uh, dramatic. But in terms of the application of American power and influence to the region, this has been a very bleak stretch for the U.S. And this is, again, part of what we mean by a distracted superpower or a distracted great power. I mean, we've just seen a massive instance uh, of ethnic cleansing uh, and, you know, involving not maybe every 125,000 of the Armenians who had lived in, in Nagorno-Karabakh, but many of them. Uh, and Azerbaijan has emerged from this completely unscathed. Uh, Turkey is one of the enabling countries for Azerbaijan in terms of this ethnic cleansing. But it's it's a very, very shocking turn of events. It kind of came and went in our media, in our media but it's um, a really shocking instance of... Russia being unable to prevent this, the United States being un- unable to prevent this, Europe being unable to prevent this, China not being interested in uh, in preventing this, and you know just a kind of power grab uh, on the part of a uh, of a small country, and it's 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 really disturbing in terms of what it tokens for the South Caucasus and perhaps just international order more uh, generally. And of course, the sort of cynical side of the story is that Azerbaijan is a major energy producer, and that sort of is a disincentive for many countries, including the U.S., to get on the wrong side of uh, of Azerbaijan. But it's a very, very depressing, and even more than depressing, very, uh, I would say, disturbing turn of events there over the last two months. So, Michael Kemijin, in your article at Foreign Affairs, The Great Power Distraction, you say that a profusion of crises is emerging in which mid-sized powers, small powers, and even non-state actors collide, and the great powers can neither deter nor contain them. Is that to say that we could have a Guns of August situation that, that led to World War One? You know, maybe not. Maybe that's not the outcome of this uh, very worrisome turn of events, because in 1914, 
uh, the world really was governed by the great powers, uh, and they commanded enormous resources, and they were enmeshed in a much too complicated alliance system or systems of, of, of antagonism. And precisely because of that, when you had the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, you know, a kind of local event, uh, the misadventure of a Serbian nationalist, led to tensions between the Habsburg Empire and the Russian Empire. Those tensions escalated to war, and that drew in the other great powers, France, Britain, uh, and Germany. And then you had a world war, you know, roughly two months after the assassination of the Archduke in, 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 in June. That's really not what we're seeing. We're seeing almost the opposite of that. <laughs> the great powers are aloof from a lot of the crises that are developing, or they're kind of clueless, uh, and they're unable to act. Uh, and that's very bad because these crises are, are, are sort of going forward and intensifying uh, and getting worse. But it's not as if even the war in Ukraine has drawn the U.S. and, and Russia into a straight-out shooting war. Uh, they've sort of held back in some ways. Uh, and there are a lot of other crises that you can point to and just sort of see the great powers uh, on the sidelines. So we're in a bad moment for sure. Uh, but I think it's manifestly not 1914. So in your article, you also say that U.S. foreign policy suffers from a disparity between intent and capabilities. Could you elaborate on that? Yes. I mean, I think it's a very, very common tendency in the State Department, uh, in the U.S. government to have a position uh, on every crisis in the world and often to suggest rhetorically that the U.S. is going to be uh, a part of the solution. Uh, And that, of course, sounds good. That's an appealing uh, posture to have. Uh, it's nice to think that the U.S. could be a problem solver uh, in many situations. Uh, but, uh, you know, U.S. capabilities are limited in many respects. We've seen that in Ukraine, that the counteroffensive has not achieved uh, what we hoped it would achieve. It's going to be a long grinding war and probably will not end in some kind of outright uh, Ukrainian victory. You know, U.S. has, I think, rhetorically been relatively cautious when it comes to the war between uh, Israel and Hamas, but uh, you can see the limitations there. I just mentioned Nagorno-Karabakh, where the U.S. had been very involved diplomatically. Uh, Lots of phone calls between Secretary Blinken and and political figures in the region. Uh, And when push came to shove, you know, the U.S. really didn't do anything. Uh, And you could also add in the multiple uh, coup d'etats that have been occurring uh, in the sort of central regions of, of, uh, of Africa in the Sahel, uh, which have all been contrary to U.S. interests, but the U.S. has again been sort of unable to uh, act. So the, there's a rhetoric of being, you know, sort of internationally omnipresent and the problem solver uh, in all of these places. The reality is more checkered. Uh, and in addition to political dysfunction, resource constraints, financial, uh, military materiel uh, are also uh, limitations. So you can you can really see the edge of American power maybe more clearly than at any time in the last 30 years. So in the last few minutes, then, the war in Ukraine, of course, has been on the front burner and get most of our attention until uh, this war erupted between Israel and Hamas. You were just suggesting that it's somewhat stalemated, at least the counteroffensive is not achieving its ends. The weather apparently is turning against Ukraine. They did have another meeting of their contact group. Um, can the Europeans step in if the Americans get bogged down uh, with the problems in the Congress in terms of aid? Well, maybe with stopgap financial measures, but the U- Europeans cannot replace the role that the U.S. plays. And a lot of that role is played, it's important to emphasize, a lot of that role is played by the White House. So the U.S. is a convening power when it comes to the war in Ukraine uh, and has very substantial diplomatic resources that matter a lot to keeping the pro-Ukraine coalition together. And Congress is not going to get 
uh, in the way of that. But if there were to be a kind of tapering off of the U.S. commitment to Ukraine, which is possible, not inevitable, but uh, but possible, Europe is going to have a hard time stepping into that role. Europe has pledged itself to all kinds of munitions productions, arms productions for the sake of Ukraine. They've been very slow to meet their own uh, targets. I sort of sense just a lack of urgency uh, on the part of uh, Europe, in, in addition to all kinds of internal domestic uh, political woes, which are which are sort of always uh, there. So um, it's it's very very important for the U.S. to stay the course <laughs> as a as a as a as a matter of uh, you know as a kind of abstract statement that you can make about this uh, conflict because without the U.S. Uh, as part of the structure, you know Europe will be one third of the effort. I think Europe, the U.S. plays sort of two thirds of the role uh, in terms of keeping everything running, and Europe is not a uh, is not a substitute. That's um, uh, unfortunate in many ways, given the fluidity of the situation in the U.S., uh, but Europeans are going to have to reckon with that. But just in closing, you said earlier that Russia has effectively lost the war. That doesn't mean that Russia, that Putin won't turn Russia into a garrison state and dedicate most of its resources to the military and essentially end up like a North Korea in Europe or on the edge of Europe. Yeah, that seems to be a trend that's visibly... Uh, happening. And, you know, Russia in maybe not quite losing the war, but in being unable to win the war, which I'm firmly convinced is the case, Russia is not going to be able to take any of Russia, of Ukraine's major cities. Russia has not made a major territorial advance in Ukraine since the summer of, of 2022. That's, you know, 14 months or so uh, ago, and they've struggled enormously to take uh, the territory around Bakhmut, which is a city of 70,000 of very dubious strategic value to uh, to Russia. So in no way is the war going brilliantly for Russia, but in not losing it or in failing to win it, they are going to wreak enormous havoc and cause enormous damage uh, in Ukraine. And it's really up to this country supporting Ukraine to qualify, minim- minimize uh, and manage that uh, that damage because it's formidable. We're entering into the winter. There are going to be more attacks on the electrical grid. We've all you know, read about attacks on the food supply in Ukraine, uh, general sort of economic and social basis. It's 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 really um, uh, it's really horrific. So there are ways in which you can lose wars and inflict terrible, terrible damage, uh, and that's unfortunately exactly where Russia is. Well, Mark Akimage, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's always a great pleasure to speak with you, Ian. Well, thank you, Michael. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Kimmage, who's a professor of history and department chair at the Catholic University of America and chair of the Kennan Institute Advisory Council and a fellow at the German Marshall Fund. And from 2014 to 2017, he served on the Secretary of State's policy planning staff at the United States Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. And he's the author of The Abandonment of the West, A History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy. And his forthcoming book out in March is Collisions, the War in Ukraine and the Origins of the New Global Instability. And he has an article of Foreign Affairs, The Age of Great Power Distraction. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into how civilians in Gaza are caught between a fierce bombardment by Israel in retaliation for Hamas's atrocities against their civilians and the illegitimate repressive religious fundamentalist government of Hamas. The First World War, boys It came and it went The reason for fighting I never did get But I learned to accept 
accept it with pride for you don't count the dead when God's on your side Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Leila Hilal, who is an independent analyst who was co-director of the New America Foundation's Middle East Task Force. Previously, she served as a legal advisor to the Palestinian Negotiations Department and advised the Palestinian Constitutional Committee during the drafting of the Basic Law. She acted as an external advisor to the Palestinian negotiating team as part of the Annapolis Bilateral Peace Talks of 2008 and was a senior policy advisor to the Commissioner-General of the UN-Palestinian Refugee Agency and a visiting fellow and instructor at the Refugee Studies Centre at Oxford University and has consulted widely and published on conflict mediation policies in the Middle East. Welcome to Background Briefing, Leila Halal. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Leila, and I'm sure this is a, a sad moment for you and clearly in terms of conflict mediation, there's nothing like that happening at the moment in Gaza. And in fact, there are at least 350,000 people have been made homeless. So what's your sense then of where this is heading? Because it seems that Israel is preparing for a much, much larger offensive. Correct. I think we're all sitting on the edge of our seats waiting to see what happens and um, feeling much trepidation. Uh, just today, there was a spread of uh, violence into the West Bank. Um, there were shootings of uh, and killing of individual Palestinians at a funeral and a call by the national security minister Itmar Gavir Ben for settlers to attack Palestinians to arm themselves. And um, we have seen some settlers uh, attacking and killing Palestinians, um, including the two I just mentioned um, in uh, the Nablus area. So the violence is spreading um, and uh, we have... uh, Israeli or uh, Israeli militias arming themselves and taking action in the West Bank. We have um, we have the rockets being fired uh, from uh, Syria into Israel um, with the Israeli uh, response of um, destroying the airfields in Syria. Um, this is certainly having very far-reaching and significant reverberations that will only continue. So, and of course, Secretary of State Blinken is in Israel and he's been shown photographs of children and toddlers shot dead in their homes and cars, and which is basically makes you wonder, what do you think the Hamas motives were to meet at such brutality against the Israelis, knowing what the repercussions would be? So... What is their strategy? Are they, do they really want to draw the Israelis in to a land war inside Gaza? Well, I, I can't speak on behalf of Hamas. I think the attack on Israeli citizens and civilians um, was abhorrent. I personally, um, of course, uh, stand against those, those attacks, and we have to take that at face value. At the same time, I think that 
the response of, of the United States and others coming to the defense of Israel is understandable. But however, the very significant violence being unleashed against Palestinians in the Gaza Strip and as we're seeing beyond is rising to a level that goes far beyond acceptable defense and securing of Israeli citizens. In terms of what the motivations would be, many people surmise that the pending normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia would undermine Palestinian rights um, and their ability to advance their cause, um, and that disrupting that was, was an intention. But as we're seeing, the response goes, goes so much farther. What, it's hard to see what positive outcomes were intended by this. So can you make a case then, Leila, that the citizens, the Palestinians living in Gaza, are victims of both Israeli oppression and the oppression from Hamas, which of course is hardly a progressive organization, although some progressive circles in the US and Europe are, are coming to the defense of Hamas, but you know, they've obviously they've been hostile to the LGBTQ community in Gaza and uh, the Guardian reported in 2009 that Hamas enforcers were patrolling beaches to ensure that women wore conservative clothes in a similar way to the way Iran's morality police operate. And then uh, more recently, they've segregated all schools in Gaza by gender. And they are basically a, you know, they're hardly a democratic organization, to say the least. So what do we know about how the average citizen in Gaza fields, because now there are being bombs are raining down on them. They're undoubtedly angry at the Israelis. But what is their attitude to the government, even though they voted this government in? Well, they voted, you know, Hamas won the, the vote in 2007, after which Israel imposed a complete blockade on the strip of territory. Um, and that's a, a blockade on the air sea and land and controlled heavily what went in and out of Gaza. And the situation was quite, the humanitarian situation was quite dire for over a decade. We're now approaching 16 years of this uh, total blockade. And over that period, there were no further elections. So Hamas is is not a legitimate governing authority in uh, the Gaza Strip. And it is primarily acting out as a as a non-state actor in carrying out these attacks. It does not have a mandate from the Palestinian people to do that. And of course, however, it's the Palestinian people that are paying the price for the escalation. However, I think you know the disproportionality, to say the least, of the Israeli response is suggestive of this what is a very racist and worrying, militarized, genocidal almost uh, response whereby all Palestinians are targets because Hamas carried out these attacks. So it's whether or not a Palestinian resident of Gaza is sympathetic to Hamas or even affiliated, it does not justify the complete and utter destruction 
on cutting off of basic life supplies for the people who are living in Gaza. Um, and then finally, I would just add that, of, of course, Israel's total blockade of Gaza meant that it was still legally an occupying force. And this Gaza Strip is not a separate territory. It's not an independent state. It's a, it's a small area of land, heavily populated, completely dependent on foreign aid and humanitarian aid, um, and now subject to a complete and total <laughs> blockade of, of all of water, food, and fuel, and widespread bombing. So it's Hamas's action is needs to be dealt with. The kidnapped uh, civilians, Israeli civilians, is a, a outstanding matter that needs to be resolved as soon as possible, and Hamas should release those people. But the question is, what is happening in the Gaza Strip right now, and what is going to happen more broadly to the Palestinian people, um, to, the, to the Israeli state um, as a result? The implications for Israel as a, as a country are, are quite high, and then regionally we're, we're facing a very dangerous moment. But for the people, the two and a half million people in Gaza that have nothing to do with Hamas and its fighters, and I believe there are probably only 10,000 or so actual fighters, they, they lost about 1,500, I think, in the attack on Israel. But the idea that you could somehow kill those people, and of course the, the head of the Israeli military described them as human animals, which is not exactly... A comforting thought. Where do the people go? There's no room in that strip, and the Egyptians won't open up the corridor in the south. So how could you make a military distinction between targeting the fighters and uh, and the collateral damage, which is the euphemism for civilian casualties? Well, precisely. I mean, it, there is a, a need to sort of reflect on the basic geography of the area. The Gaza Strip is 139 square miles, um, basically the size of Philadelphia. Philadelphia has a population of 68 or 70,000 approximately, and the Gaza Strip is uh, you know, close to a 2 million. So you have a, a, an extremely densely populated part of the world um, where, um, in which... Uh, as you said, the Hamas uh, fighters are, are few um, compared to the overall Palestinian total population in the area. Um, what is Israel intending to do? It's, it's now, um, it's cutting off all of these basic supplies to the Palestinians. With what intention? It's, it's not clear. Um, the Palestinians are, in Gaza are saying that they're afraid of starvation. Um, in addition to being killed by bombs from the air. Is Israel clearing uh, spaces for its troops to go in? There are 300,000 reservists that are poised to, as predicted, go into Gaza and eliminate Hamas, as, as the language is being thrown around. Um, and it will be very hard in such a densely populated area in, that is so destroyed to determine who is Hamas and who is not. I think it's, it's unclear what the Israeli approach is beyond 
at this point what does appear to be almost a you know borderline genocidal way of completely taking out uh, Palestinian life and undermining their ability to survive. So if you just take what's happening at the moment, they're not distinguishing at all between civilians. In fact, they seem to want to undermine the civilians. Will they go in and do more targeted, pinpointed operations against Hamas? What are 300,000 troops going to be doing uh, pinpointing military action? It, It seems like we are facing a much more grave situation than simply taking out Hamas. But just in the last couple of minutes, is there any way to give the people, and you've dealt with the refugee issues, Leila, is there any way to segregate the people from the fighters so that the people don't get killed? And since they've got nowhere to go, who's going to open up some kind of corridor just for the the dire humanitarian need for this very young population, by the way, who are innocent, to have some form of safety. Correct. Forty percent of the population is, is under fifteen. I, the Israelis, that has been bombing Rafah border crossing, which is the land between land crossing between the Gaza Strip and Egypt. Um, it would be the only humanitarian corridor possible, but with Israel bombing that crossing point, um, they are indicating that they do not want Egypt to open it. So they are um, very clearly wanting to, frankly, murder Palestinians. And I I find this very hard to say and very hard to swallow, but um, but what else could they, they be seeking if they are precluding the departure of Palestinians or, or their ability to seek safety in an area that is so densely populated and all of which is, is a target for military activity and destruction. Well, it's an eye for an eye, isn't it? Isn't, it, isn't this what it's all about? The blood is boiling because of the atrocities committed against the Israeli civilians. So this is I don't this- think it's an eye for an eye, and I... I feel that the discourse in the United States has become very extreme and suggesting that because Hamas carried out this attack in the name of Palestinian rights, then all Palestinians are, are, are non-human and should not be considered to be human or treated with the same norms and rules as Israeli citizens. We have to stand in support of people um, and humanity. Well, Leila Halal, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Okay, thank you very much. And again, I've been speaking with Leila Halal, who's an independent analyst who was the co-director of the New America Foundation's Middle East Task Force, and previously she served as a legal advisor to the Palestinian Negotiations Department and advised the Palestinian Constitutional Committee during the drafting of the Basic Law, and she acted as an external advisor to the Palestinian negotiating team as part of the Annapolis Bilateral Peace Talks in 2008, and she was a senior policy advisor to the Commissioner General of the UN Palestinian Refugee Agency and a visiting fellow and instructor at the Refugee Studies Center at Oxford University and has consulted widely and published on conflict mediation policies in the Middle East. 
We're going to take a brief station break and back examining today's superseding indictment against Senator Menendez for acting as a foreign agent for a foreign government while chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I am a poor while traveling through this world of war. Yeah, there's no sickness, toil, or danger in that bright world to which I Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ben Freeman, a research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Previously, he was director of the Foreign Influence Transparency Initiative at the Center for International Policy and a national security fellow at the Project on Government Oversight, where he spearheaded the Foreign Influence Database. And he's the author of The Foreign Policy Auction. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ben Freeman. Thanks, Ian. A pleasure to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Ben. And there's been a superseding indictment issued today against Senator Bob Menendez, the former chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He's being very defiant and refuses to step down, even though his fellow New Jersey senators asked him to, and 30 other U.S. senators on the Democratic side have also asked him to do. Curiously, the only defense is coming from the Republican side, what do you make of this superseding indictment today? Yeah, it, it, this is jaw-dropping, really. Um, everything that, that we hear about this case, I, 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 I think, only gets more and more jaw-dropping. And I think it's important to, to put this in perspective for your listeners, what happened today. This is a, a, a sitting member of Congress, the the head of the Foreign Relations Committee, you know, the most powerful committee in the U.S. for foreign relations. And he's accused today of serving as a foreign agent for a foreign government. That's just unheard of. You know, I've been investigating foreign influence now for 15 years, and this just never happens. There, 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 there's no precedent for, for this that, that I'm aware of. The, the only other case that we have of a, a of a former member of Congress uh, getting charged with violating FARA. That was all the way back in 2010. So w- really what happened today, um, it, it's historic. And FARA is the Foreign Agents Registration Act, and Senator Menendez didn't so much violate it, but as a member of Congress, he's prohibited from being an agent of a foreign government, right? So he right. So they're not nailing him for violating FARA so much as violating the fact that you can't be an agent of foreign government when you're a member of Congress. That's right. Yeah, yeah. In, in fact, all government officials, whether in Congress or serving the executive branch or in the military, uh, none of our government employees are allowed to to work with folks who are required to register under the Foreign Agents Registration Act. And this case is is the allegations at least are are especially egregious because what he's accused of is doing work uh, on behalf of a foreign government in exchange for money, gold bars, you know, cars even uh, in, in exchange for him doing work that would benefit the Egyptian government and, and would kind of grease the skids to get the Egyptian government a lot of U.S. military equipment. And 
Senator Menendez's successor, who took his place at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee's chair, Senator Ben Cardin, he blocked this tranche of aid to Egypt. Egypt gets over a billion dollars a year from the US. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, what Menendez was trying to do was to push for more aid or there was pressure coming from members of Congress because an American citizen was seriously injured in a 2015 airstrike by Egyptian military who were using a U.S.-made Apache helicopter, and members of Congress were unhappy about Egypt's government not uh, fairly compensating the injured American citizen. So what happened was in May of 2019, Menendez and his wife and a business, this business associate, Wael Hanna, the Egyptian go-between, met with an Egyptian intelligence official in Menendez's office in Washington, D.C., to see whether they could fix this problem to get the aid flowing. And shortly after the meeting, Hanna, the Egyptian official, the intelligence official, texted Hanna, the businessman uh, who actually introduced Senator Menendez to his new wife. Uh, He said that Menendez had helped resolve the matter and the Egyptian intelligence official said then he will sit very comfortably. (laughs) Well, we know what that means, right? Right. (laughs) And uh, that may have led to the gold bars and the the $480,000 in crisp new $100 bills. Right, right. Yeah, when, really, Ian, when, when you read through this indictment, it reads like something out of a Bond film. <laughs> you know, there's there's shiny new cars, there's there's gold bars, there's bags of cash, you know, money stuffed in clothing. Um, it, 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 it's crazy. You, you know, it's it, it, it's the stuff out of a, you know, a spy novel. But, uh, you know, this is the, the one of the most powerful men in the U.S. Senate who's accused of doing this. So uh, the very highest echelons of power in the U.S. government. Well, they've had closed-door meetings, uh, the Senate uh, Democrats, and apparently uh, Menendez is defiant. You know, he's not going anywhere. I think probably in part because being a member of Senate gives him certain tools to defend himself with, right? Right, right. And, 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 you know, he keeps drawing a paycheck and, you know, he keeps having access to some of the sensitive information. So, you know, all of that's a bit uh, a bit worrying, too. And and let's not forget that that, that there were previous allegations back in uh, 2015, I believe, of uh, some corruption related charges were brought against Senator Menendez. Uh, he, he 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 escaped. He, he he got through that. There was a hung jury, and so he was never convicted of those charges. So his internal calculus might be thinking that you know I survived a a firestorm once before. Maybe I can do it again. I don't think so uh, because if, if if any fraction of this indictment is is true, there there are some seriously damning allegations here, and I at least haven't heard anything from the defense or from Menendez that that provides a reasonable explanation for all of this. Well, Menendez is accused of passing along classified information about employees at the U.S. embassy in Egypt to the Egyptian officials and including their intelligence people. Now, it's most likely that the names that he that the Egyptians wanted to know about are the CIA people under under diplomatic cover. 
So I'm astounded that Menendez is still getting intelligence briefings. Yeah, yeah, that that part of the indictment was, I think, especially worrying because when you start talking about embassy officials, you, you're right, Ian, you're potentially talking about, um, you know, CIA operatives, people that are undercover. Even if you're not talking about them, you, you know, you're talking about U.S. diplomats, you know, the people that are out there, you know, trying to represent America to the world. And really, the, the, the last thing they want is to be outed and, and you know, to have, uh, you know, folks in other countries, you know, know who they are. So the, the national security risk are, are, are just too immense. So it's very troubling that some of that information was was being given, you know, directly from a U.S. senator making its way to to a foreign government. So what do you think is going to happen on this whole that Senator Ben Cardin, the, the new chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, who replaced Senator Menendez, who stepped down when uh, the first indictment came, and we're talking about the second one that just yeah. came today, the hold of $320 million in aid out of the annual $1.3 billion that the U.S. gives Egypt is a big blow to Sisi, the president or dictator, depending on the way you want to describe him. I imagine at this point it's a little tricky because the U.S., uh, because of Israel's war against Hamas in Gaza, they're probably wanting to get cooperation from the Egyptian military, right? And Egypt's under a lot of pressure now uh, to open up its closed borders with Hamas for humanitarian reasons. Egypt, of course, doesn't want to take in a million or even two million Gazan refugees because they may never leave. So it's a very tricky moment. So what do you think about the broader geopolitics here? Yeah, I, I think with this, the, the what's on hold here is is military funding. And so this this would be distinct from any sort of you know humanitarian aid we might provide to Egypt to 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 help with the situation, the humanitarian situation um, in, in Gaza, you, you know, so we can we can sort of kind of you know you know break apart that firewall between those two. But I think for you know it's certainly important for the U.S. to you know do what it can to to, to help to re resolve this conflict, you know, hopefully with less bloodshed. Uh, but but with the case of Egypt here, as it pertains to this issue, it, it's also important that the U.S. starts to send a message to foreign governments that when they're they're running these corrupt schemes to try and buy off our politicians, you know, whether it's Menendez or others, whenever they do these things, there's the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, so many other countries have been caught red handed in in operations not too dissimilar from this. And we don't punish them. You know, we we don't do anything to to make them think twice about in, in the future. And so what we've done, we've created a pretty permissive environment for foreign governments to meddle in America. So I'm I'm hopeful at least that uh, that Cardin and the rest of the Senate Democrats and hopefully the Senate Republicans too will realize they've got to send a message to Egypt that for for their role in this that they're going to pay a price. And so maybe that'll make them think twice about doing something like this again. Well, apparently Jared Kushner is a little nervous at the moment. You know, he got $2 billion from the Saudis, and clearly that was payback for favors he did when he was in the Trump administration as a special advisor. Apparently Chuck Schumer has uh, said to some people, that Jared is going to end up in jail, which frankly is music to my ears, but we'll see. 
But just to finish up, though, on Egypt and Sisi, Sisi, of course, being a general, is interested in military aid. He's also up for re-election, not that the elections are going to be free and fair, but he's got a problem, as most of these Arab dictators have, that the Arab street is going to get increasingly outraged as, as the Israelis pound the hell out of Gaza and civilian casualties pile up. So they're not, you know, there's likely to be some kind of backlash uh, in Egypt and even in Saudi Arabia and certainly in Jordan and certainly on the West Bank. So that's why I think the U.S. is in this position to negotiate with Egypt and probably uh, this money might, the hold on the money may be lifted. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly a possibility. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, Egypt is one of the top recipients of U.S. military um, um, financing and foreign military sales. And so is Israel, too. You know, those two countries are two of the very top recipients of military aid from the U.S., and so, you know, there's no shortage of U.S. firepower that's already already there. You know, defense contractors, of course, they they want that those weapons and that financing to keep funding. And we've already seen that defense contractor stocks have started soaring basically as soon as this the, the Israel war began. So there. Yeah, you're right on that sense. Ian. there are a lot of forces that are working to make sure that this hold gets lifted and that that military financing gets through. That said, I don't think it's the right choice. And I think it's high time that the U.S. stand up and do something and push back against these malign foreign influence operations. So just in closing, though, let's go back to Wael Hanna, the Egyptian businessman who Menendez was doing favors for. He apparently introduced Menendez to his wife, Nadine. And there was some rumor that that might have been a kind of honey trap that he was operating on the, on behalf of the Egyptian intelligence service, knowing right. that uh, Menendez was corrupt and using this buxom beauty as a uh, lure to get their hooks into him. Do you think there's anything to that story? I, I, I do, you know, not to be too conspiratorial, but, you, you know, it's hard when you start adding all this stuff up that you have this corrupt guy who introduces him, you know, like, like you said, Nadine's a beautiful woman. And then it's almost immediate after they start dating, you start to see, so according to the indictment, you start to see some of these communications with the Egyptian officials and you, you start to see this corrupt scheme get, get set up. It, it, you know, has all the hallmarks of, you know, a, a John LeClaire novel, you know, classic honey trap scheme. Uh, you, you know, the DOJ doesn't take a stance on that. But I think for those of us on the outside, it sure looks a heck of a lot like that's what happened. Well, Ben Freeman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Always a pleasure, Ian. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Ben Freeman, who's a research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Previously, he was director of the Foreign Influence Transparency Initiative at the Center for International Policy and a national security fellow at the Project on Government Oversight, where he spearheaded the Foreign Influence Database. And he's the author of The Foreign Policy Auction. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. 
And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half